1: Pass the mic. Well, Jamar, as we said, I am sharing my Leave Loud story, but the truth of the matter is my story does not start with me, and we're not just starting with me. I think, Jamar, it's time that I introduce the PTM family to a special person in my life, and that's my father. My name is Greg Burns, and I'm from Meridian, Mississippi. Well, Dad... Thanks for doing this, man. This is cool. (laughs) My pleasure to be here. Thanks for asking me, man. (laughs) Yeah. Finally introduce you to the podcast. You can see what I do. Um, Yeah. I've always been impressed with it. Well, you know, I've been saying that I need to tell my story. And we've been talking about it from the context of me telling my story. But, you know, I was saying to Jamar and some others that my story is not just my story. It doesn't start with me. And I was going to reference so many of the things that you have been through as the broader backdrop and context for my engagement with Christianity, my engagement with my faith and my belief in Jesus. But I figured it'd be best to have you on so that you could actually talk to that. You could actually speak um, to that. So I think the first question that I have is, can you talk about what life was like growing up in Meridian, Mississippi? I grew up um,
2: in abject poverty, being raised by a mother, a single parent of four boys and four girls. And um, I was right in the middle. And um, one of the things that probably tempers my negative experiences is that I have this optimistic outlook on life. You do. You really do. Actually, (laughs) you (laughs) You really do. That, but, but that yeah. can be a, a strength and a weakness in, in certain instances. In fact, you know, uh, they say that a weakness is really a strength taken to an extreme. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, probably the extreme uh, side of that part of my personality can lead to denial or mm. you know li- living in in an uh, oblivion of, of what's actually happening around me and um, in in the reality and the stark reality of some details that I probably just uh, somehow just suppressed or compartmentalized mm. uh, but overall I, you know I had a, a positive outlook on my my upbringing even though we I've had some extremely negative experiences uh, yeah. But um,
1: yeah, can you talk about that? Because I think I think you know, you didn't know your father growing up, but you knew of him because y'all were in the same city, right? Um, d- just being, you know, totally transparent here, my
2: dad, uh, my father had an adulterous relationship with my mom, and out of which came two children, myself and my um, sister, two years younger than I am, Tanya. And uh, I did know him personally. He would come around and give us money periodically and speak mm. to me and everything. It, it, but I was not allowed to tell his daughter, who was born the same month and same year that I was. We were best friends in school. I knew she was my half sister, but she did not know I was her mm. half brother. Wow. And uh, she had a crush on me, but I had to keep her at arm's length, you know? Um, yeah, that's
1: weird. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> so, uh, uh, a little so, too close, a little yeah, too little close, too, close, too yeah. close to comfort. And actually, n- never saw her uh, since uh, graduating from high school, the night of graduation from high school, until a couple of years ago when my dad, at 91 years old, died. And I was gonna mm-hmm. go to the funeral, and I saw her for the first time since graduating from high school. Wow. In May of 1976. And so your mom passed away when you were 12. She spent the last two weeks of her life with her head in my lab, uh, dying Mm -hmm. of cancer. And I saw the uh, cancerous tumors protruding throughout her body and I wouldn't leave her. So her head was Mm -hmm. in my lap the last two weeks of her life, Uh, took her to the restroom, bathed her, did all of that. And she said, Greg, when I uh, get up! We're going to do something special for you because uh, you you've been here with me the whole way through. And two weeks later, she died. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I was twelve years old on my own, without a mom, without a dad. My sister, who was twenty two years old, became my legal guardian. Yeah. She already had her three or four children, and I helped her raise those children. So, according to the statistics, I should have had uh, a, a a terrible outcome in life. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: mm-hmm. yeah. That's a lot of trauma. (laughs) That's a lot. That's a lot.
2: And because of my optimistic bent, you know, I didn't view it as such, you know. I just rolled with the punches and turned the lemon uh, into lemonade, you know, and turned the negative into a positive.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting because I, I hear you talk about your experience with faith at a young age. And. And it's it's fascinating because you were clearly exposed to faith in a black setting in some context, but you didn't get saved in a black setting, right? There wasn't a conversion experience there. So what was your first perception of black church, black Baptist, you know, expression of faith and denomination? What was your perception of that? Well, I grew up in uh, 31st Avenue Baptist Church
2: Hmm. in Meridian, Mississippi the Reverend Whitlock was my pastor. The
1: Reverend Whitlock. Okay. Yes, okay. yeah. <laughs> and so I love it. As, as a, as a kid,
2: you know, I, uh, I, along with my cousins and my brothers, you know, as we would watch Reverend Whitlock preach, you know, we would go home and have some humorous uh, conversations and right. uh, uh, because uh, we, he, he was a unique individual, great preacher though. And, you know, Hooped and uh, yep. the traditional Baptist um, uh, expression of, of preaching and communicating the gospel, and so have a lot of fond memories of that experience. But and I and I began, um, you know, in leadership roles at a very young age. Um, at fourteen years old, was assistant superintendent of Sunday school. Hmm. Um, became, I didn't know that. I yeah, did not know that, and became the youth district leader for our
1: denomination, um, at 14, I had 14 years old huh. and was, but speaking- hold on, though. Wait a second Wasn't this the time that you were also playing in the nightclubs too? Was this, was right? this? I was
2: simultaneously, <laughs> uh, <Hold> I- <laughs> <laughs> yes, ex- exactly. Uh, had two, you know, two, two lives going on there. Oh, man. And, um, But I taught myself how to play the guitar when I was 12 years old. My mom got me a guitar for Christmas um, that December when I was 12, and she died that August of the following year. Mm. But I taught myself how to play the guitar, and so – I when my mom died, I argued with my grandmother about you know I could really make some money to help the family out by going and playing nightclubs, and she fought and fought and fought and fought and, and eventually she just gave into it. So mm-hmm. yeah, at fourteen years old, I was playing in nightclubs and uh, making money for the family
1: and also leading the, <laughs> the district and leading the di- district in the Baptist denomination. <laughs> so uh, I love it. I so love
2: it. uh, you know, it uh, got to do what you got to do. Man. You got to do what you got to do. And, but my my grandmother instilled in me this holy fear of hell. Hmm. And um, that is what kept me from a lot hmm. of negative uh, experiences and activities because I had drugs, women, women, alcohol, uh, everything around me, I was too afraid to touch it because I started having Mm -hmm. dreams that night of being thrown into hell because my grandmother, she stopped talking to me, but she continued to talk to God about me.
1: Wow! And I could
2: hear her words, hell is hot and it turns a long, long time. (laughs) (laughs) So I got scared of that and got (laughs) out of the nightclubs into the quartet group world. And Wow, man. I, I know this may not be stereotypical of every case, but for my experience, even though those guys, I love them dearly. They're great friends. But man, I got so afraid of that because those experiences were, if not the same, were worse than what I was having in the nightclub mm-hmm. because I mm-hmm. just realized that, wow, the, the intentions for what they were doing were not in line with what I consider to be, you know, pure biblical um, standards, but they're great guys. And many of them came to the Lord and and still serving God to this day. One of them was a pastor of a
1: church. Wow. Hmm. So you get, you're in that experience, but then at 16, you have this radical conversion, but it's in a white setting. And I think it's so telling that you experience all this pain in black settings and there's even a sense in which you kind of feel a little jaded by what you saw, and you get invited to—I believe it was a revival meeting or something like that. You said, "Can you can you talk about that?"
2: Yes, my best friend, my best friend Casey Treat um, said, "Greg, uh, there's something happening on the outskirts of Meridian in Collinsville, Mississippi, out in the woods and the fields, and a little cottage out there." uh go with me on a Friday night. So man, I put on my three-piece suit mm-hmm. and um uh, my tie and I jump in the car and I ride with him 30 minutes outside of Meridian, Mississippi, and we walk into this uh, little cabin in in a, in the middle of a big field out in Collinsville, Mississippi. Hmm. And uh and I walk into a room with a three-piece suit on <laughs> yeah, on a Friday yeah, night. Yeah in a room full of hippies, long haired, barefoot hippies. Most of them didn't even have a shirt on. And one guy, I don't remember his last name, but his first name was Mike and he was preaching and it grabbed my attention. And uh, at the end he said, if you were to die right now, do you know you go to heaven? Do you want to accept Christ? Here I am teaching and preaching and Mm -hmm. speaking Mm -hmm. In the black denominational environment, uh, was looked up to by many as a spiritual religious leader, but I raised my hand because I could not wow. say that I was saved. And he took me in to the back and led me to the Lord, and uh, the rest is history. Because all of a sudden, though I was teaching the Bible for the first time, it's like. Man, my eyes were open, and I mm-hmm. could understand what I was reading, and uh, and got excited about you know serving the Lord, and uh, that's yeah. kind of my conversion story.
1: And so this was in a very Pentecostal, charismatic. It was smack say. dab
2: in the middle of the 1970s. Jesus what they call the Jesus uh, freak movement or the Jesus yeah. people's movement. And, the, and they were a part of that in that revival. I remained in the, the black uh, church, Baptist church for another year. But when my eyes became open to the scriptures and I was understanding what I was reading, mm-hmm. I began to sh- confront and challenge the traditionalism of my black environment, uh, denominational environment. Uh, and, caused a lot of friction and yeah. so uh, eventually I realized I couldn't change them so I had to change the environment.
1: huh now what was the decision you you made the decision to to leave Meridian and come to Pensacola for Bible college. How did that happen and when did you know that was a possibility?
2: Well we went to a place every night called the coffee house. A graduate of Liberty Bible College was teaching. He was a part of a Liberty church there in Meridian, Mississippi, and he was teaching every night. And so every night we would go there and get taught the Bible. I would take my nieces and nephews and even my sisters. Uh, my sister Kenya recently just talked about Greg. I, I remember those coffee house days. Even Tanya told really? me that recently. Okay.
0: And
1: so, and so I don't mean to interrupt you, but this is a white teacher. White this teacher. is a white white environment. So you got saved in a white environment, and then you're also being discipled in a white evangelical kind of while expression. while simu- simultaneously in the Black Baptist church. Until mm. I went
2: to my grandmother and said, "Grandmother, I got to leave because this is not the environment for me. I've got to go and get fed the Word of God and and be in an environment that mm. that you know um, coincides with what I believe is is some scriptural." And so. Uh, she cried and said, you can't leave. You were born, baptized and raised yeah. in 31st Avenue Baptist Church. Uh, but the next pastor, after Reverend Whitlock died, uh, he said, oh, no, he's hearing from God because I was causing a lot of problems." <laughs> <So laughs> she <laughs> wanted to get rid of you. He, he was, was like, hey, get Anderson. out of me, go. <laughs> so I became a member, uh, the only black member of Liberty Church in Meridian,
1: Mississippi really? at that time. At okay. the age of sixteen in nineteen seventy. Okay, okay, we got to talk about this. Yeah, got to talk about this. So you were the only black member, young black man. Mm-hmm. What was that even like in Mississippi, which is a black environment? What was that even like for me? I when I when
2: I got saved and, and accepted Christ, uh, I I just became. Um, immersed into the scriptures and whatever environment coincided with, with how I viewed scriptures, I wanted to be in that environment. I don't care if it was an environment of long hair, barefooted white hippies, or mm-hmm. you know, the upper um, middle to upper class uh, white environment at the mm-hmm. Liberty Church. And I was yeah. there for a year before uh, Roger Carwell, who was a graduate of Liberty Bible College and had the coffee house going, introduced me to a man who came to speak at Liberty Church, a Meridian who was the founder of the Liberty Fellowship oh, and organization, okay. the founder of the Liberty Church in Pensacola, Florida. And that's Ken Sumrall. And when he told me he was a founding president of the Liberty Churches and the Liberty Bible College, I... Kind of, you know, explored uh, what it would take to, uh, to attend. And a year later, August of 1976, I got on a bus. My sister was crying as I was driving wow. away hmm. uh, to Pensacola, Florida wow. and um, and attended a liberty service that night and uh, met your mom. You know, yeah. for the first time, she was at the altar looking oh, at me so in the back to the
1: church. Wait, so that was your first night. So your first night there, that's when you met Mom. That was your first first night. She, w- I saw at the altar. Looking, it was after church,
2: and she was talking to her friends, and I was in the back of the church. And she looked at me, and she and her friends, two other best friends, Dottie and Margaret, yeah. came well, and introduced yeah. themselves to me that
1: night. So were y'all the only black students there? We all, the, oh, I know they they weren't attending the
2: college; but. they were just attending the church. Okay, no, they were they were attending the church due to a man who actually officiated our wed- wedding uh, five years later, Joe Worsham. Uh, he had a minister called. Uh, The coffee house Uh, The one in Meridian was called the Hallelujah Coffee house, but this was the coffee house In uh, Pensacola that he headed up And he would bus kids To, uh, and and young
1: People to the Liberty Church Wow, wow Man, Liberty Bible College Wow, can we, because this is right Around the corner from where I live, can we go there? Yeah, (laughs) absolutely (laughs) Yeah, you live out in that area Right, let's go there
0: Yeah This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and certificate programs. Begin your master's or certificate program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit.
1: So, wow, you're at this Bible college, you're away from home, you're in Pensacola, Florida. Do you in any way experience racism in Pensacola? Do you experience being treated differently? Because now you're in a predominantly white environment. What was that experience like? Now, one of the things you've got to remember about my personality is that
2: even though my dad had a negative experience, mm-hmm. you know, did the wrong thing. I never spoke negative of him, even though I could not be a part of his life. He could not be a part of mine. I never, ever one time remember driving in the same car with him, hmm. riding in the same car with him.
1: You know, it's, it's funny that you say that. Cause I only met him once and I met him when I was 23 and we were all at a funeral. Mm-hmm. Big funeral, and ironically, the funeral was—I think it was of a third cousin or second or third cousin in yes. the family—who had been killed in suspicion that it was potentially a race, a racially based violent killing, and absolutely due to his romantic relationship with a, a young white woman. And um, am I remembering that right? Is that right? You're remembering
2: exactly right
1: yeah they found he
2: he was missing for a couple of weeks found his car eventually in the woods and his body parts were spread throughout the woods. in the same area of the girl he was dating wow
1: hmm and what's so ironic about that is you know we came out it was a very emotional funeral we came out and we're standing around and then all of a sudden i hear somebody behind me say hey And I turn around and he says, I'm your grandfather. And, you know, my brother, Wellington, was much more, I mean, well, he's a gamer, you know, so he just, you know, went into it, shook shook hands and, you know, everybody was smiling. I was smiling. I was just like, I don't know who this dude is. And right after he said, right after he shook all of our hands, he said, well, love you. And put up a peace sign and just walked away. And I... I remember being so upset, but also kind of sitting back and saying, I, I understand now what you went through and I understand now the pain of having someone who you love or want to get to know, you know keeping you at an arm's length, not ever pulling you close, you know? So that's a that's a very interesting, but yet and still, even with us, you never spoke ill of him ever. Like it was never a negative, a, never a singular negative word. I heard you speak about your your biological father,
2: right? And um, and I remembered a little differently. It's it's essentially the same, but I remember saying, "Hey, Wellington and uh, 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 Tyler and Destiny." I said, "This is your grandfather, uh, this is your granddad." And uh, and he said, "Oh, he just kind of." shook your hands and said, well, see you guys later, (sighs) similar to what you said. And so when we were in the car on our way home, uh, back to Pensacola from the funeral, I said to you guys, hey, don't focus on what you don't have as a grandfather in your life. Focus on what you do have, that you have a mom and dad in your life. But see, that's the way I am. But now after his funeral, a couple of years ago on my way home, my sister Tanya, who couldn't be there, uh and she lives in ohio she called me and said Greg how was it and then she told me she you would not believe six months ago I said I would never call him again because all these years I will call him and say I want to be close to you. He would be on the phone for two minutes and say well I gotta go. Wow. And see that yeah. broke her heart. And yeah. she was she said I can't even believe I cried last night. I said oh yeah she said he she said now your other your your daughter by your wife She's a part of your life. I want to be a part of your life. But he would never allow. See, it had a more traumatic, devastating effect on her. And I did not know that until that day after the funeral. So again, that's your
1: personality.
2: And that's how you, that's kind of how I deal with life in general. I'm going to look at it optimistically. My sister, it had a devastating effect on her life. Right.
1: And so you, you, I think you would, you treat racism that way. I,
2: I absolutely do.
1: And so did you experience that? in work, in life, in, in just your, your everyday experiences in Pensacola? Um,
2: now I personally, even when I was at Liberty Bible College, again, it can be right in front of him. Now your, my, your mom, uh, your your mom may be different. I won't speak about her experience, but, uh, for me, I, I would, um, I, I just kind of always saw the bright side of things and, uh, Uh, In spite of what any any one thinks or how they treat me or what they say, um, I I deal with it from an optimistic standpoint. You know, this little saying is that you know life is ten percent what happens to you and uh, ninety percent of how you respond. There are some things I have no control over, but the majority of it is how I respond to it. Now, again. A weakness is a strength taken to an extreme. Right. That type of personality responding to racism that in many instances may be very uh, obviously in front of you and 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 affecting you directly or indirectly taken to an extreme will cause you to maybe land in the area of denial right. and not addressing right. some things that yeah. need to be addressed. Yeah. Um, and so. I definitely later on in life began to realize, man, we got to deal with some stuff.
1: Yeah. I remember you telling me some stories about how in the context of even your, you know, you would drive a truck. And so in your context of you delivering stuff or being in that environment that you would experience, you know, comments or things from other people. um, I was 23 years old. Floyd
2: Perryman was, he's gone on to be with the Lord now, but he was probably 50 or 60 years old. And I'll never forget uh, delivering to a house because immediately when I graduated from Liberty Bible College, I became um, assistant pastor, a worship leader at the Liberty Church on the north side of town. But to make my living uh, at that time until I became full-time in ministry some years later, I I was a part of a plumbing company. And, and I was driving a truck for a while before I became the supervisor of that department. And I'll never forget, uh, Floyd Pearman and I were in Loosedale, Mississippi at a house mm. uh, out in the uh, country area. And uh, a little two or three or four-year-old child was there uh, outside with his mom. And he looked at me and he said, oh, so you are... That little boy said, you are old N-word, and you are the young N-word. Mm. And his mom said, shut your wow, mouth. Wow. That means for at that age, he was hearing yeah, that somewhere.
1: Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Man. That kid didn't learn that on his own. Right. He was hearing that at home. Yeah. Was there ever any discussion in your Christian education of race, politics? Did you have a black professor? Was there were there resources that were being read by black people? Was there anything in that environment that you know told you more about yourself? You Ab- know, in that way?
2: Absolutely not. Uh not no black professors and uh definitely conservative Republican, mm-hmm. uh that mm-hmm. I carried over into <laughs> the
1: church. Oh, we don't get to <laughs> oh we gonna get to that. we gonna get to that, brother. we gonna get to that.
2: Yeah, so uh
1: I mean, uh, I, I we, we bought all in, you know? Yeah. But essentially you had to. I mean, yeah. especially if you're going to be an assistant pastor of that church. And so you didn't hear anything about race. Politics was just right-wing, you know, Christian. So you were the assistant pastor of this white church for 10 years. This is right around the time that you married mom. That's when you transitioned into that role. And so we're... You know, I didn't come till six years later, but we are the one of the only Black families in this environment, right? Mm-hmm. We're one of the only Black families in this environment, and you're leading, right? You're a very prominent face on the stage. What was that like? <laughs> because, yes, I know that theologically you were in line, but then there was also the reality of there is a cultural difference here.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and being a part of that predominantly white um, environment um, in line with what I believe theologically um, I didn't have any issues culturally because I didn't think black or white. Mm -hmm. Um, I, Mm -hmm. I just thought unity in the body of Christ, we are one in Christ and that is scripturally correct. Um, But my uh, black friends and, and people in the black community, uh, had a different view of me. They felt as though I was abandoning that right. my people. Right. Uh, and so the, some of them would come to my office out there and say, we need you in our community. Right. And, uh, and I told them, I don't think black or white. I think the will of God, you know, and unity in the body of Christ, oneness in Christ. Until hmm. the time came when in June of 1991, I was at uh, the, 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 uh, at the bottom of the Quiche mountains in Guatemala, asking the Lord after a two week missions trip, um, if I should be a missionary. And the Lord said, no. And I said, whew, thank you, Jesus. And, uh, he said, I want you to start a church in Pensacola, a Mm. multicultural church that will bring the races together. So I came back to my pastor, uh, that I'd been under for 10 years at Liberty church, Northeast Carl Vinson. And, um, he was, um, about to go on a missions trip to Russia. And so when I told him, I want to start, he said, hold on, wait till I get back from the trip. So he got back in September. He said, I want to bring it before the board that since God has called me to be a missionary in Russia, I recommend that you be the pastor of this church, Liberty Church. So in that board meeting is when my eyes were finally opened. That race was an issue yeah uh because the two things that were said to me is we would gladly let greg become this church come become the pastor of this church but he's got two things working against him number one uh, his age and number two, his race. And it could have Working been- Working against you.
0: <laughs> <yes>.
2: <laughs> so my race and my age. And he oh, yeah. said that in the Liberty Fellowship, <laughs> the only way he can become a pastor is to start his own church. Wow. Uh, there's no church that probably he can take over because there are no predominantly black churches in the organization. Now they did say, if he feels God has led him to do it, uh, the founder said, I will get behind him and, and right. push him. And after all that back and forth and finally realizing my skin was an issue in that white environment that I had never been aware of. I'd been oblivious to up to that point, defended the environment um, is when my first race challenge came within that predominantly white charismatic Christian environment that I had thrown myself 100 percent into for all those years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I, um, I've never gotten a straight answer from mom on this, but I, I think something was either said to me or done to me in the children's ministry. And I may be you know, misperceiving it, but there was for about, I want to say, three or four years, I would have a recurring dream, this is my adult years, I would have a recurring dream once a month of a white woman standing over me and calling me the N-word until I woke up. And I was in a toddler environment. It was like I was a toddler. And so I'm not saying that that happened, but when I, whenever I asked my mom, did something happen to me? She would always say yes, but wouldn't say what it was. And so it's interesting because you all are encountering so much. And I know mom has her own stories and I won't speak for her but you're encountering so much and you are encountering this reality and you do know that it is now present and real, yet you're pushing through it. You're continuing to navigate it. And then when you start the church, you start the church and it's predominantly black, even though you have a multicultural, you know, identity, you have a multicultural perception, but you're attracting black Christians now, right? Mm-hmm. What was it like pastoring black Christians but not being necessarily from the same background or having the same view of the world that they did?
2: Yeah, it, um, the, um, the, the purpose for starting the church was multicultural. I had a multicultural vision, wanted to bring the races together and, um, and had a pretty good following of whites that were a part of our church and even moved into leadership and staff positions, um, but once we reached a certain level of growth, when we got to a thousand, the, the white participation, up to that point, it was 30, 40, sometimes 50%, but the mm-hmm. white membership began to dwindle, plateaued at first and then began to dwindle. And um, and so i I was different. I was different for the black community because I was not the traditional preacher. Um, having taught and preached in a white environment, needless to say, there was no hooping going on. Right. Um, and yeah, it, But
1: you were physical, though. You were very fiery. You were yeah, very intense.
2: Yeah, I, I was. and You just couldn't hoop. <laughs> well, eventually, I started trying. <laughs> yeah, to, you <laughs> did. You did. You, you, try, know, you try. I tried. You tried. You know, I tried. When I got the kind of uh, musicians that knew how to back up a hooper, right, right. and uh, sometime I tried, but it always ended up in a hoarse voice and uh, <laughs> straining to uh, you know, get the uh, get the words out because my voice pitch was so high. Right. But that's not who I am naturally and, and never really aspired to be that. Uh, but um, but for the blacks, they they had a hunger for something new and um, non-traditional, non-denominational. And I came along at the right time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So around this time you start for church and I was three years old when the church started. And so there were, you know, obviously you were the the only preacher I remember, you know, growing up. So the only instruction, spiritual instruction I remember from a pulpit presence was a black man, you know, outside of like school chapels, which we'll get into. And you all decided to send me to the private Christian school in the area, the top private Christian school, I should say. And it's interesting because Pensacola is just such a, very intense spiritual environment. So you have the Brownsville Revival, which was um, happened a few years after you started a church. Mm-hmm. You have obviously Liberty Bible College, which you know is responsible for creating a lot of pastors and churches that still exist, even though the college is no longer now. But there's also kind of the flagship independent Fundamental Baptist school, you know, private school. Mm-hmm what was the thought process for sending me to this environment? Help me understand. Why, why did you, why did you all send me to this environment? You know, what was the thought process? Well, we, we wanted you to get a good, solid,
2: uh, Christian, uh, education as a part of your, the foundation of your life. Mm. And so, we sacrificed to do that, understanding that they have took a strong
1: stand against what our church believed. Um, right, which is so interesting. So, this is, I, and I want people to understand this because I, I was on Sunday morning and Wednesday night, and really, you know, five days a week pretty much mm-hmm. at church and receiving a completely different theological presentation. Mm -hmm. Than what the school was presenting and what the school was presenting was implicitly or sometimes explicitly saying what your family, what your church believes is wrong.
2: Absolutely. And uh, again, understanding my personality. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So your your personality was and I think also that's like a I think also a trauma response to, you know, pressing through and convincing yourself that things are fine, even if they're not. And I'm in the midst of this environment and I'm receiving this education and I I think I enjoyed it and loved it because it was all that I knew. But now looking back on it, there was an intense sense of, you know, just confusion, you know, because I was receiving mixed messages, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And I would come home, especially when I was a teenager, and I would say, man, racism isn't even a thing. (laughs) <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Like, and y'all would say, no, that's not true. You know, y'all would be like, what are you talking about? Like, no, it would say racism isn't true. How did you feel about how the school was making me see life and making me see my own identity in light of the faith that they were trying to disciple me in? Well,
2: I love the the foundational theological biblical scriptural foundational concepts that were being laid in your life and I enjoyed the educational level and and excellence because the school you know is world renowned you know and world impacting with its uh, material the thing that I began to detect is that there that, that was a little bit of a, uh, I don't know the best way to exp- express it, identity crisis there as far as yeah. racially, how you viewed yourself, and maybe a little denial uh, because of being in that predominantly white environment for Christian education for so many years, that when you would make statements saying that racism doesn't exist, um, although we knew how to navigate in those environments, we never... Denied, Denied the yeah. reality of racism, yeah. and so it was one of the things we were trying to tell you: no, we don't want you to be bitter about any experience, but at the same time, we don't be in denial about the stark realities of racism that we were very much so aware existed uh, still in society yeah. and in the environments
1: that we operated in. Right, right, yeah, yeah. There was a, there were a lot of intense conversations because I think even with even with with mom with you, it was just like. You were trying to help me see that no, just because we are navigating this doesn't mean that you should deny it. Yes, Exactly. And also experiencing from a young age racialized or racial incidents from teachers and administrators in that context. And then also my brother and my sister, who came much later than me, they experienced even worse than what I did. I experienced some things which, you know, um, I talk about with Jamar, but I, man, they experienced even worse than, than I did. Yes. What are some of the things that you saw that made you very concerned about, or at least, you know, heighten your senses to how the school and the environment was interacting with us culturally as a part of our, our personhood and our identity? Well, for
2: you, there were very few um, instances and incidents and experiences that made me extremely concerned. There were very few. Now, getting hit by your teacher in kindergarten, we got in
1: her face. Okay, yeah. So this was interesting. So you told me this before (laughs) you told me this before you said your your K-5 teacher hit you. On the head. And I was like, what? So that was one I had definitely forgotten. Now my fifth grade B teacher saying, you know, that I was cursed because I couldn't get a math problem. You know, that was a little bit different, right? Um right. I remember that. And I remember how much that shaped me. I remember how angry that made y'all as well. Um but yeah, so it was these little things, I think more than anything else, it was these little things, and it was also. I didn't really have any avenue in that space to develop my own personal identity and to figure out who I am, not just as a Christian man, but also as a black Christian man. Yes. And yes, I was receiving some of that naturally from our church because over time, like while there was that push towards, okay, our church is, is going to be multicultural and multi-ethnic before that was a thing over time, the church got blacker and blacker. Like it was just black, Absolutely. you know? Um, and then it was just like, okay, this is black church at a mm-hmm. certain point. Like this mm-hmm. is just like just black church. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there was just this crisis. And so the question I wanted to ask you is you used to always say, hey, we want better for y'all, meaning me and my siblings than what we had. Mm-hmm. You used to say that all the time. The question I have, which is a hard question, but I I think something that I want to wrestle with is, did you think that whiter was better? Did you think that a white environment was naturally better for me to be in? Do you think that that represented progress? Do you think that that represented us stepping out of the cycle, so to speak? What did you, is that fair to say? Or is that, well, I wasn't really thinking about that, but maybe, I don't know. Um... I know that's a hard
2: question. <laughs> a hard question, <laughs> yeah. but I'm gonna be transparent about what why I really put you in that Christian environment. It wasn't because it was whiter. The the word for me as a parent is I felt it was I felt it was safer. Hmm. Um hmm. white was not my issue, safety was my issue. Hmm. And and so in the you know, school district, secular educational environment i was concerned about drugs i was concerned about negative influence i was concerned about all of those things the the christian values although that wasn't my best choice it was probably my only choice at that time
0: yeah
1: and you know what's so interesting you know now thinking about it is y'all it's so interesting to wrestle with because y'all y'all made it through that environment and a lot of other people made it through that environment right Yes, And I I feel like, and this is, this is you can tell me if it's true or not, I feel like there was not just a spiritual salvation that was being offered to you through these white spaces, but I feel like there was also this social salvation because it baptized your view of the world. So it baptized your view of education, it baptized your view of politics, it baptized your view of, of how you viewed other people, edu- it, like everything. It just baptized the way you thought because... I think you know this now, but the three of us can make it in any environment because, Absolutely. We, because y'all taught us.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. Because of y'all, not because of the environment. Wherever environment we go, we have y'all with us, mm-hmm. right? Um, and nothing can change that. So I feel like it was just this baptism of how you viewed the world, which didn't come up till many years later. But do you think that it, even how you got saved and how you process theological education, all that changed the, the fundamental way you viewed the world. Um, and ab- not all negative, but just changed the way
2: you viewed the world. Absolutely. Um, if I had been in a black charismatic environment, being taught the same wor- word, the same Bible, uh, the same same scriptural truths. I believe I would have been culturally um, mm. molded in a different way than I was in a white environment. The only thing I really wanted was the Bible and what was true. Right. And, and I was pursuing God. But the only way, place I could find it at that time was at a predominantly white church in my hometown, which led to me being involved in a predominantly white church church in Pensacola, Florida, which was the reason I came here to attend Bible college. And so I was excluded, um, uh, segregated, if you want to use that word, from the predominantly black community for my five years of being yeah, in Bible college, yeah. and then the other 10 years of being in a predominantly uh, white church. And so when I started New Dimensions, some of the uh, white, uh, the black members used to just tease me about how I was ignorant of some of the cultural right, norms uh, right, in the right. black community. Um, but I believe that being in that predominant white environment definitely shaped my thinking and led me to you know, lean towards certain areas politically, culturally, socially, uh, as well as theologically. Um, And so what I considered to be a safe environment for you uh, and your um, brother and sister actually kind of backfired. Yeah. Yeah. You see, eventually as time went on, because then I began to realize that some of this stuff, was racism shrouded in the terms of Christian uh, language, um, yeah. Christian talk, and, po- yeah. and political views and worldviews uh, that at its core worked against me as a black person rather than for Wow.
0: Hmm.
1: Wow. 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 So we experienced a lot. I mean, even my brothers and my, even my brother and my sister, like they experienced a lot. They experienced way worse than me. Yeah, their experiences were worse. See, in my mind,
2: I'm I'm really thinking racism, for the most part, is a thing of the past. Right. Uh, right. Systemic racism or experiential racism. You right. may pick up a little here and a little there, but I'm thinking that this is in the past mm-hmm. until my oldest son, I think you may know who he is, uh, began to uh, <laughs> challenge me uh, and say, "Dad, this stuff is still real." And I and and we would go back and forth. I said, "Well, I don't think it's on the level that you are um, expressing it." Until my and I would say, "Hey, y'all don't experience it," and they say, "Oh, yeah, we do. We hmm. just never talk about it." I'm talking oh. to Wellington and Destiny.
1: Okay, so my siblings openly said to you, "No, we do experience. We we literally suppress." the experiences that we have because of why, why didn't they tell you? Why do you feel like they I'm, didn't tell I'm thinking
2: you? I was so bent on, I, I was, I was so passionate about um, unity in the body of Christ, even among the races. And they heard that talk and they heard that from the pulpit that I, I guess they didn't want to, you know, rock the boat, you know, but my first Reality check was when Wellington was in junior high school.
1: Uh-huh.
2: It was after school. I was coming to pick him up. He was in a circle with all white guys. Yeah, and I walked up on this guy saying, "You're not allowed. Your kind huh. is not allowed in this circle." You need wow. To to and then I, I I called the school on that. Wow. I called the school, and then Destiny okay. tells me she's at lunch. And the guy keeps joking about the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan. And she tells her, that is offending me. Stop. He's a staff child, staff member child. She went to the office and told them he wouldn't stop. That guy got brought in. I think he was not allowed to play football that year or basketball that year. He got reprimanded. And she caught a lot of heat from her uh, female classmates because of that.
1: Because he wasn't allowed to do what he, but he didn't get expelled. Didn't get expelled. <laughs> and then in her senior year of high school,
2: they're walking across the street in Washington, D.C. A bunch of black guys drive by and whistles at one of the girls. And one of the white uh, girls yells out the N-word You are loud. kidding me. Oh, you never heard of that? I that one that. I did not know.
1: That was her senior trip. In- <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, Wellington and Destiny had it so much worse than me. But I don't think... It could have been I was just blind to it and ignorant of it. But, yeah, those are traumatic experiences that have shaped a lot of the way in which they view themselves and the world. And, I mean, they're phenomenal. They're just so gifted and talented and smart and really wise as young people. But I know for a fact, for some of those instances and even some ones that you didn't even mention, that hurt them. That was tough for them. Mm Mm-hmm. That was tough. So I start, man, so years later, after all this, I start talking about race. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Very publicly. So it's interesting. I was actually with you the night that I found out Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson. And I was sitting across from you and I remember telling you, this is going to be a big story. And it was, I think, a Saturday because you were prepping for the service the next day and we had actually been talking about planning you know certain things that we needed to to uh, plan out for the service the next day. and I, I remember telling you that was going to be a big thing and then I put up a post about it the next day and then that's when the vitriol started to me. It was a very innocuous post. I didn't really say anything strong and furthermore, I had been taught by you to very to very carefully judge and measure my words. And so I start getting heat from everywhere. Local pastors, uh, influential people that you knew. How did that feel? Like, what was your initial fear? Because we had some tough conversations at the beginning. What was your fear with me speaking out the way that was? Um, one of the
2: weaknesses of my parenting of my three children and I would probably say it's it's your mom's weakness too, because I think we both share this is that we are overprotective. Mm. And so the overprotective uh nature in me for you stepped in and wanted to protect you from what I knew you were about to undergo. And that's why I advise you and counsel you as I did. Yeah. It's for your protection.
1: Yeah.
2: And uh but I had to one day you were preaching at 3201 West Navy Boulevard. It was maybe one of your first sermons, you know, yeah. uh, when you came back from uh, Liberty University. And uh, and I remember getting in the pulpit after that. And I think I wept as I said that when you were a little uh, baby and I was assistant pastor at Liberty Northeast, I used to prepare for my sermons every Saturday night because I'd preach every Sunday night and I would pace the floor Um, You know, going over my sermon. And at that point, you would never look at me eyeball to eyeball until one night I saw your eyes follow my eyes Mm. across the room back and forth. And it was the first time that I felt uh, that um, I caught your eye as Mm -hmm. your dad. Mm -hmm. And I said, but today I'm 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 moved because I'm confident that Tyler has now um been able to follow the eyes of his heavenly dad Mm. and Mm. and i felt that that was a shift from the earthly dad to the heavenly dad and that's when i began to internally let you go and Mm. realize that yeah your heavenly dad can protect you a whole lot better than i can and that the key is for you as i heard a preacher say years ago uh the safest place outside of the will of god is the most dangerous place but the most dangerous place in the will of God is actually the safest place. Yeah. And he quoted yeah. he that dwells in the secret place of the most high shall abide in the shadow of the almighty. So what I had to start doing is letting you go, putting you in God's hand. Stop yeah. trying to be the overprotective dad, because the more I talk to you and the more you educated me on matters of justice, the, the more my eyes. Yeah. were open to the reality and I began to see it in society and now I'm fully aware of what's i am
1: no
2: longer in denial, you Listen, know.
1: Listen, <laughs> but the whole the whole growth of what you've experienced even in a couple of years has been fascinating because again like you were you were at that place of being overprotected but then over time I think you saw there was just this mountain of evidence and that this wasn't just a fab with me, it wasn't just something that I was talking about in in isolation. And I really think there was, it really was a missing piece of my identity that I found. Mm -hmm. And it was the the piece of my identity that I think I had been searching for, for a long time. And I found it. And once I found it, a lot of doors closed for me. And you know that, Mm -hmm. but a lot of the right doors started opening for me. Absolutely. And I think you saw that and you saw that, there was a hunger and a thirst for you know, people to hear mm-hmm. this message in the way that I was saying it. And so I think you just got behind it. You said, oh, man, this makes a lot. And then in our conversation, beyond it making a lot of sense in our conversation, we, we were making a lot of progress. And that happened very, to your credit, that happened very quickly. It wasn't something that took years. I feel like it took like six months.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And... There are still challenges. Right. I mean, now leading the church, there are a lot of challenges and there's difficulties. But I think you've seen that. Whatever you've instilled in me and whatever you and mom have taught me. It'll never leave me, you know. Right. Um, and the way in which you very strictly discipline me as a man. Um, has set me up to be able to do the work that I'm doing today. So what, what do you, what do you look, you look back on your life and you see all these various experiences. And there's a huge chunk of this story we didn't even get to um, because there's this huge chunk called Azusa that I'll probably talk about in the episode, mm-hmm. um, which is massive for your formation and our formation as people. Cause it's really, I think when we embrace really the Pentecostal, true Pentecostal side of ourselves. But you look back over your life on all these experiences and, you know, how do you, do you interpret your life differently now that you know what you know? I'm not really sure um, how to answer that
2: other than, I I do believe that life is um, an evolving experience of growth Mm -hmm. and maturity and the tragedy is not being in the dark. The tragedy is once you see the light choosing to stay in the dark,
0: hmm.
2: you know, so the the, the greater ah. manifestation of maturity is that once you see the light, well, I'm not going to stay in this dark place. I'm moving. And so whatever it costs, it costs what it costs, but I've got to walk in the light. And so, um, as i grew and developed in my understanding and enlightenment of the need for a justice voice uh, a voice of justice for marginalized uh, people and uh, uh, then i began to move in that direction to where unashamedly and with no fear not that i was ever afraid my thing was i was pursuing unity and, yeah. and not understanding that it can't be unity at any cost. And mm. once the evidence was blatantly clear, you know, then I could not deny it. I had to take a stand for what was right. And so I've observed you and very proud of you. You, you've gone way beyond me, even the leading of our church. The future is very bright and I, I, I couldn't be a, a, a dad more proud than I am of, mm. of his son. So um you're you you're far beyond your years and far beyond me and your development and your influence, which goes beyond the local church you know into the community i mean even here in Pensacola you're looked up to you were, you were voted as one of the r- young rising stars of Pensacola recently, so the community acknowledges. Uh, what you contribute and what you bring to the table, and the impact and influence that you're having on our area, and so the community is proud of you. You you authored the uh, co-authored the book of, with Lecrae, uh, and you're 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 going places I've never gone and uh, and beyond, and you'll take our church uh, to levels that I would never take it. You you've al- you're already in the process of doing that and doing it well, and so I'm proud of you. So hey, uh, what what dad couldn't do, you know, uh, his son is going to do and do greater. And that makes me proud. But I'm also glad that I had the opportunity for my son to educate me and help develop me and open my eyes into some areas that I really, truly was blind to be it intentional or just out of the, you know, desire to see unity among the races in the body of Christ.
1: Wow. Thank you, Dad. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I think people are going to be blessed by it. I hope so.